0: you are listening to the savage wonder podcast this show is a long form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts this show is produced by veterans repertory theater which is a tax exempt non-profit 501c3 organization which provides a platform for talented veterans not all veterans just talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events my guest this week was Francisco Martinez-Cuello, who first came to my attention when his play, Salsa Night, uh, was submitted, when he submitted it to us for our second playwright full-length playwriting competition. It ended up placing third out of well over 200 submissions. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal piece of work that I am a big fan of and which hopefully there will be more news to come about salsonite in the future i was looking forward to this interview a lot because like with a lot of our writers that whose work i've kind of invested my time effort attention focus in um i'm interested in the writer i'm interested in understanding the method behind the madness and certainly that could not be more true about francisco um understanding who he was where salsonite came from And, you know, who's the person behind the writing? I, you know, doing a little bit of research on him before the show. We met actually in person this last October at Arts of the Armed Forces Bridge Awards. And, um, you know, I'd kind of been keeping tabs on him and having talking here and there. But I saw the breadth and depth of work he had done. You know, we've had a lot of people who have done one contract in the military, uh, folks that are immediate family members in the military, and all that. Here was somebody who had done a full twenty-year career, and now had gone guns blazing, figuratively, into a writing career. It seemed like, and we'll talk about that obviously in the interview, and about you know the chronology of him. Uh, you know, taking each step that he's taken in his writing career since he got out in 2015. But it was really interesting to me that somebody that did a full 20 years in the Marine Corps could do that, get out, not be chewed up to the point of (laughs) inoperability. And, um, and on the contrary, be so energized and be writing so robustly, so prolifically. Um, It was just really interesting to me. Uh, I won't give a whole lot of spoilers here, because obviously Francisco and I are going to talk a whole lot about it in the interview, but I will say that there's a lot that uh, resonated with me with what Francisco had to say. And he's certainly a great um, test case, case study, maybe that's a better phrase, case study, in turning therapeutic writing into for lack of a better phrase, commercial writing or writing for the public. And obviously at Vet rep, that's something we care an awful lot about. Uh, so it's interesting to hear how that had gone for him and, and how exactly he ended up where he's ended up. Um, one of the things I do need to say is, uh, so we talk a lot in the interview. And one of the things I don't really set up in the interview, so I need to set it up here. Uh, Francisco is currently on a fellowship in Bethel, Alaska, Working, uh, as a, as a journalist doing a radio show, um, for a small station out there and covering, um, all sorts of stories, which you'll hear him talk about when we we get into the weeds on that. But, you know, he's kind of working in many different, uh, media. So journalism, radio journalism, he went to UC Berkeley for journalism. Um, he's written a lot of creative nonfiction pieces his work, uh, it's probably worth mentioning some of this because um, we do reference it, but you know, his work has been featured in the Line Literary Review, Hippocampus Magazine, Iron and Air, Wrathbearing bearing Tree, Consequence, Bull, Hobart, Construction Literary Magazine, Split Lip, The War Horse, River Teeth, Beautiful Things, Collateral Journal, the Dominican Writers Association. He's written for a lot of different um, publications. He was the co-editor of the second volume of the series Sex, Drugs, and Copenhagen. Uh, he's a product of the Writers Guild Foundation Veteran Writing Project. Uh, he's written for the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, um, or sorry, been a, a retreat scholarship recipient for them. He's been an editor and contributing writer to Panorama, the Journal of Intelligent Travel. You know, it's it's just an awful lot of stuff. Um Oh, I'm sorry. I I miss said that he's an into the fire writing retreat scholarship recipient. He's a Virginia center for the creative arts fellow. So there you go. Um, point being, it's an awful lot of writing in so many different media. And then not to mention, you know, going to Berkeley for journalism and then being a working journalist out in the hinterlands of Alaska. So, uh, and then on top of that, being a member of the La Jolla uh, Playhouse's Veteran well, I forget what they're called Veteran Playwriting Workshop or whatever um, which is great and such a great project and uh, you know he mentions our mutual friend Cherie Engel who was part of his cohort um, there at La Jolla and of course that led to Salsa Night which is as I said is a play I'm a big fan of so um, just a very prolific writer And the fact that it came initially uh, from a true therapeutic, uh, the mechanics of therapy, I guess, is, is interesting to me. So anyway, I think that's everything you guys need to know to have the appropriate context to fully enjoy the interview. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director at Veterans Repertory Theater. And this is The Savage Wonder of Francisco Martinez Cuello. Welcome to the show, Francisco. Oh, boy. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You got your cup on. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) Dude, it's great to see you, man. Um, I guess we saw each other in October, right? It feels like a lifetime
1: ago. A lot has happened and changed, but yeah. So the, the
0: last time we did something on Zoom and I talked to you on Zoom, it was like a proof of life video. I felt like you were like in some white closet somewhere. I felt like the screen was grainy. I felt like at any point, mass dudes were going to come in and cut off the feed. I didn't know what was going on. And I figured, oh, that's Bethel, Alaska. Okay, bitching. are you still there? Is it? Cause this is a lot nicer. It looks like either you took over and you're now one of them or you, or you upgraded to a different room or something.
1: I'm pretty much the mayor of Bethel now. Uh, so as you can see from my setup, I've got a, <laughs> A pretty cool mic to be on air, and a uh, soundproofing on the wall. So yeah, this is this is my turf now. I'm. I love it,
0: man. In Alaska, <laughs> how's it going up there? How are you liking
1: Alaska? Uh let's see. <laughs> uh, well, you you know it's uh, I just I just did a story on uh, on this person. Uh, it was Reese Madden. He finished the uh, the he finished the he was the last to cross the finish line at the uh Kuskokwim 300 300 mile uh race dog sled race and um oh yeah sure that's so like the like, iditarod type thing right well i mean it's it's the iditarod's like a 1000 miles but the, oh, okay. this this is the the premier mid distance race and okay. so like it's highly coveted and it took him 48 hours to get through the race and um you know it speaks to so those folks that come in last get the red lantern and that that shows the perseverance and determination and that's basically um rural alaska you got to have uh, a certain level of of grit otherwise you're you're not going to make it here and um and and i respect the hell out of that um i respect the the people that are um living off the land um fishing hunting um to provide for their family all winter long because Winter here is 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 a challenge, and um, I'm I have a newfound respect for these folks, and um, I consider it an honor to be here and to report and and just be a member of the community, um, even if I am the outsider. So I hope that answers the question.
0: Is it a newfound respect, or did you kind of know that going in when you took the gig in Alaska? I think I think
1: I'd like to say that it's just like oh well yeah it's it's challenging. Like it's, it's rough terrain, but like, and, you know, certainly those of us in the military have, have seen rough terrain. Um, but to be here in a different capacity, um, as a civilian, um, as a, I think you have to experience it to, to truly appreciate it because otherwise it's just lip service. Like, yeah, yeah. Folks out here have it tough. And then, but then you get out here and you see what they're going through and you're like, wow, these guys have it tough,
0: you know? (laughs) is it is it really the case that that they have to live off the land or is there any choice in it is it that they could there is enough infrastructure for them not to have to live off the land they just choose to do that
1: uh i think a little both uh you know they're out there in the logistics tether um i you know i myself have run out of water um and and so the you know when you get outside of bethel which is bethel is a 6000 um the population is six thousand, roughly or so. I'm not sure, uh, but when you get out to these outlying villages in the YK Delta, um, there are 200 people in a village, 300 people, and 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 there, that's it. That's all of them, and it's just things that they've been doing this for so long, and um, and so yeah, I think they en- that it's a it's a choice, and they
0: enjoy doing it. So. This this is going to be kind of a this could be a very insulting question I guess, Uh, but I think it takes a vet to ask this with the right sensibility. Does it remind you at all in that respect of Afghanistan, of going to a place where it's like shit, man? These are the only people you know that you guys are in this village and you don't get out that much, and people don't come here that much, and there's that sense of isolation and rough terrain. One hundred percent. You know,
1: I was in I was actually in Kabul um, in Afghanistan, uh, for, for seven months. And so like the terrain, it reminds me of Afghanistan a lot, but, um, this experience has reminded me of being in, uh, as a tr- transition team member in Iraq, uh, where, am we're literally out on the Syrian border, um, with, with not, not, not many resources, not many supplies at the mercy of the community, um, and the intelligence that they provide us. So, yeah, that's I guess. So, like using those two experiences, uh, mm-hmm. I was able I was able to be to be like, oh, I, I, this is familiar territory to me. Like, I'm going to be all right. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be challenging, and it might be feel like a long time or a long year here, but you, you'll you'll get through this.
0: Did you seek out Alaska, or just a let's call it a hardship assignment? Out of journalism school, was that important to you or did it just so happen this was the gig that popped up on your radar?
1: You know, it's funny that you asked me that question because I feel like I've been doing a lot of introspection in the sense like I've been trying to, I've been, you know, I went to therapy, I'm doing like telehealth because, um, the, uh, the sunlight is an issue for me. The lack of, you know, we only had a couple hours. Obviously the w- winter solstice just passed, so we're getting more daylight. But I was having a difficult time adjusting to that. And and I and I realized like, I don't have to do this anymore. Huh. I don't I don't need to do this anymore. You know, I can I'm I'm in San Diego living the life, you know. Uh, you know, I, I ride a motorcycle and I and I literally ride my motorcycle 365 days a year in Southern California and I'm like that's what I love doing and that's um and and here I am going back into the quote-unquote shit right yeah and 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 it makes you really think like why do we run to the hard stuff why do we run to the sound of gunfire why do we run into the burning house and I think that's the essential question for all, all us veterans like we have to kind of kind of uh think about that and and and, and scratch that itch and be like, Hey, like, why, why do you need to do that? You know, like you did enough. And, 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 and so, yeah.
0: What was it for you? Did you, did you seek this out because you thought there were more interesting stories to tell or what was it about the suck that drew you back in? Man, you're 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 hitting it hard.
1: Okay. Sorry man, yeah, no foreplay. Yeah, no, no. <laughs>
0: hey, it's your fault. If you just had a nice easy boring life, this would have been a much easier conversation, but you know, had to go there. You you guys are
1: going in raw and it's okay. <laughs> I you know, I again, I've been I've been thinking about this a lot lately, but um you know, I, I had a um I was what? 20 22 22 or 23 early early 20s right and so uh 2004 um I was I was holding my daughters uh with back then my 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 girlfriend now my wife um and uh I was feeding my daughters they're twins identical twin girls they had a pretty difficult challenging um, life spent a couple months in the NICU the neonatal intensive mm-hmm. care unit and um, so I was just happy as a clam to have them home, and I'm feeding them and just doing all the things that dads do. And I, I received a phone call uh, I, probably late afternoon, and uh, it was late as shit. I mean, it was it was actually right around this time. Hmm. Um, and we um, received a phone call saying that um, a really good friend of mine had been blown up in, in Afghanistan. Um, his name was Sergeant Kyle Seitzinger. And we served together in um, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and uh, he actually got out of the military. Um, but due to stop loss, you know, obviously, I, mm-hmm. I, Iraq was kicking off, so they had, they, you know, they weren't letting anyone go. And um, he was going to school for, at Oklahoma Christian University, when they recalled him. And he was going to school for uh, journalism, to to be honest with you. And he, uh, he, he, he. Uh, He wanted to be a journalist and he was doing his thing, being, um, a PAO type person in, in the army national guard. Uh, and he was working on a story reporting live, um, in, uh, I want to say. And, uh, they were, they were clearing a cache of, of explosives and poof. And, um you know i i lost it i i i don't think i've ever cried that hard in my life um and it really really impacted me as i'm sure this experience impacts this type of experience impacts all of the the veterans so it, it, you you can understand that and appreciate that and um it just kind of stayed with me like this guy just wanted to tell stories and he 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 loved he loved people in the community he loved um he loved helping people uh, yet he was still a warrior and he 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 enjoyed doing the hard stuff and um when i got out I, I i in 2015 i retired i was fortunate enough to retire and um i was trying to figure out what to do next you know and i figured i wanted to serve my community or serve my serve the people more and and what you know at first it was through law enforcement that never panned out um i was a little too honest in the uh the psychological evaluation, um, because yeah. we're all suffering. We're yeah. all suffering. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Right? And, and it's, it, they said I wasn't, you know, uh, I was too depressed to carry a gun. And I'm like, well, you might as well just take everyone's guns away. then, Right. If you want to talk about that. Right. And, and also, oh, by the way, I think that's the problem with, with law enforcement is that they, the, the people think it's a, it's a battlefield and it, and it's not, it's, it's a community. And um, they're, they're your neighbors, they're your fellow citizens. And and I think you'd want someone like me you know, around to, to know that it's important to deescalate so that everyone gets home sure. safely because we shouldn't be, be killing people. Um, mm-hmm. And so anyway, I said my piece. Um, that didn't work out. I got blacklisted. Obviously, I couldn't apply for any other three-letter agencies or any other police departments because of that, um, because of, quote, unquote, being mentally right. um, uh, depressed, et cetera. Um, and so what, what are the way to, to serve your community? And and that's through uh, journalism, um, you know, telling stories and, you know, it's, it's still a service and, 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 and so what better way to honor um, Kyle Seitzinger than continuing on his path um, because he couldn't, because he died for, for me to, to be here and live this life, you know, cause you, I'm so depressed. I'm so uh, blue that sometimes it's difficult for me to to continue on living. But then I, I look back and I and I remember all those that uh, have died or have ha, are continuing to push forward and move forward and doing great things. A lot of veterans are doing great things and and, and it, it keeps it stokes the fire and, and it keeps me going. And so um all that is to say is that no one else was calling me after journalism <laughs> school. Um you know you know an older guy retired uh they want young folks um they people's biases about veterans um and, and 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 so it was difficult to to get my foot in the door and so this was the only opportunity that presented itself and um i said yeah
0: let's let's do this so i hope i answered that question you you totally answered that question okay. um when you made the decision to go to journalism school to take that it's, path Besides honoring Kyle, which is a hell of a motivator in and of itself, were you a writer to begin with, or was there also a part of you that was turned on with, by the idea of human interest stories, going out, talking to people, being there, just not carrying a gun, but being in a situation, being on the front lines of some developing story? What what other inspirations were driving you once you decided to take that path?
1: Yeah, sure. So. Another good question. Um, Yeah, I've been writing. I've been a writer for forever. You know, it's um, started as an early age to just figure out who I was and my place in the world, Um, being a an immigrant, being uh, brown. And so I had a lot of anger um, and it just came to me to to jot things down. I had a marble marble notebook, and I just kept writing it, and stuff like that. Um, and so I had written. The first time I actually really got serious about writing was in 2012 when I was in therapy. Um, you know, I was I was actually it's interesting because as a captain in the the mental health unit, um, sitting there with a bunch of junior enlisted Marines uh, in the waiting area, it it, it kind of speaks volumes. And I, I was just talking to the folks the junior Marines. I'm like, Hey, like you guys struggling with stuff as well. And, uh, they're like, yeah. And I'm like, Hey, like, so am I. And, um, I'm here to, to get help and, and, and fix it. Um, anyway, so as part of cognitive behavioral therapy, I was supposed to write my trauma and, um, read it aloud every night, um, for like, you know, every night 30 minutes, write it, rewrite the story the next day, rewrite the story. And so it became like a little, a mini MFA program, right? Or a writer's <laughs> workshop. And then like, as I'm reading it to my therapist and he's just like, you know, he's, you can see he's getting emotional because of the the the, mm. the, tra- the trauma that I experienced or the, the, he's just reading this. And um, when I was done, I, I I was just like, wow, that, that felt good. Like, what are you what, – and what are your thoughts? And you know, he's asking me, and he's like, "What? What?" And I'm like, yeah, like, how was the character? Like, talk to me about the plot, you know. And he's just like, he's like, look, he's like, you are really, there's really something wrong with yeah. you. And I'm like, I'm <laughs> like, I, I need notes, man. Like, tell, tell me how to get better. Um, and so uh, uh, with that, I started to, I, I, I got that itch, and I kept writing, and um, I was able to apply to uh some veterans writers workshops and I, I was fortunate enough to get in and and find this community of veteran writers uh and and to to this day a a good friend of mine Matt Young he's a he's a writer who's coming out with his hopefully his uh, next book uh he and I maintain um uh, contact and yeah so I had enough of a manuscript to submit and I only applied to one uh, journalism school. And that was at uh, UC Berkeley. Um, and, and I got in, I was just like, well, I mean, I'll do it. And if not, because I, I, I couldn't, I, I wasn't interested in the MFA program because I, I knew I, I, I wasn't interested in teaching. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm interested, I'm interested in writing and, and storytelling. And so like, that's
0: why I, I wanted to go the journalism route and not the MFA route. What kind of things did you find yourself writing was it all directly based from the therapeutic writing you'd started or did you start to find yourself diving into fictional pieces or pieces that were extrapolated from real events but were now becoming more and more fictional what did you find yourself gravitating towards yeah that's a good question i think i liked it
1: in the beginning i called myself a novelist right and an aspiring novelist i'm like i'm yeah. gonna write the, the greatest american novel and uh Holy cow! It's rough out there. Um, <laughs> I, it, it was like it was very. I mean, I had I have so many rejection letters um, in fiction, and I found more success in creative nonfiction and and, and nonfiction. Um, but I, I still look back and and say that I'm a a, a novel writer or fiction fiction writer. But uh, I I don't know. Um, yeah so so basically it was fiction um just things that were in my head um not necessarily drawn from life experiences um, and it was more like you know popular fiction or or general fiction mm. um but uh but still th- things really I still enjoy writing and so like I would do uh, generative writing workshops or do prompts and out would come these really interesting things. And I just I would I guess I I'm an object oriented writer, meaning like I just write about a thing um, mm. and, and kind of like unpack what that thing means to me, even though like the audience doesn't necessarily need to know like what that thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's maybe it's just some things that I'm dealing with inside um, that that need to come out um so yeah that's that's my writing
0: can we talk the kind of the the chron- chronology of how you uh, what your writing career started to look like did you start submitting pieces while you were still in or did you wait until you were out to the start really full-on writing yeah
1: <clears throat> yeah um I, ha- I i waited till i got out to to submit to places first of all they're like I didn't even know anything how that whole thing worked. To be honest with you, sure. um, which is which is probably which is definitely a disadvantage at disadvantage and should be spoken to about. That's why I kind of like talking to younger writers specifically that are still in the service or or that are veterans. Because <clears throat> had I known this information, I, I, I would have. Uh, I, I would have been a different writer, but um, I'm I'm happy the way my journey turned out. But uh, yeah, it was like 2015 when I retired. Technically, I was still in when I was in the um, the veterans workshop in in Vermont. Uh, it was, but I was on terminal leave, so yeah. Um, but uh, it, I still didn't have a a publication. It wasn't until after that that the the publication started finally accepting me.
0: Were, had you been writing though? So in other words, did you give yourself a runway? you were still in, but you're writing actively just with an eye towards submitting it and publicly sharing it when you got out or did you, were you not really able to focus until you got out and then start it, putting pen to paper?
1: Yeah, I wasn't really fo- able to focus until I got out, but I was writing essentially letters to my daughter daughters, um, while I was in because, um, they were so young and I wanted to keep that memory fresh about all those experiences and the times that um, – <clears throat> what it meant to be a father to them because, <clears throat> you know, I I, uh, I didn't – I mean, I have a father, but I don't know him or, you know, re- really talk to him. I haven't spoken to him in decades. Um, so I don't really know what it's like to, to have a father. And so I had this idea of what it was to be a father. Um, you know, in my head, and what, all these cool things I was thinking about to do, um, and so as I was doing it, as I was experiencing it, I I wanted to write about it not only for their memory or for their future, but for my memory. Um, and, and so, like th- that, those were my audience, and I think it, they're still my audience, my initial audience, mm-hmm. and, and and obviously me, like right? Because every story, I'm I'm really just trying to talk to me to 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 help me heal. I guess that's what it is. It's part of that healing process where I, I need to heal. I don't know what it's like. I'm hurting. Um, not having a father, um, not having relationships with, with family, um, and, and 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 trying to heal that. So how do, how do you reconcile that? And that's through art and
0: and so yeah, that's what drove me to write. You submitted and you got featured in an awful lot of magazines. Do you attribute I mean what do you attribute that to? Were you tenacious? Did you start to have a lot of champions that were seeing your work and encouraging you to submit to other places? What was, what was that like for you to suddenly, you know, get published and actually have your work get out there? First, you're very kind. Um,
1: But uh, I, I believed in my writing and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like there's not many, well, I, I, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not good at a lot of things. And, um, but like, there's something to this writing where it's just like, I didn't, I refuse to give up on that. Like I give up on myself a lot, but for me, it's just like, no, like you're wrong. This is good. And, and I'm going to prove you wrong. And, and I'm like, I fine, you don't want this. I'll go on to the next person. Fine. You don't want this. I'll go to the next person because I believe in this work and I believe that it is universal to veterans, even though that they weren't publishing specifically veterans voices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, when you distill it, it's, it's a, it's a human story. And, and, and it's, it's a, just because it's takes place in a combat zone that it takes place in a, in a, in a, in a, in a you know, a forward operating base or, you know, combat outpost, um <clears throat> at the end of the day, This person is a character. This character is is it wants to be loved. Wants to wants to survive. Is grappling with ending another person's life. This other person is conflicted with the suffering that they're witnessing, um, and even more so with the children that they're seeing. Um, And and those those stories are important because of the the decades of war that that we've experienced and 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 so yeah that that's what keeps driving me and i i don't care about a rejection i know i will get it published somewhere and 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 i and so yeah i'm, I'm proud of i'm proud of my work i'm i have to be like i have to be i have to believe in myself otherwise this thing isn't going to work you know a hundred
0: percent did you find that you had to write about military themed subjects. Were you able to write about non-military themed subjects? Was it, what was that process like finding subject matter or was for you, was it just a matter of going, look, I got a laundry list of shit I want to sort out. And until I get through that, I can't really focus on, on other stuff.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's, it, it's, it's funny because like, it's such a weird experience that I had. You know, every, every it's that's what's so crazy about this whole military experience. You know, it it varies, right? And so, but then you're like, you start adding layers to it. Like, I'm I'm brown, I'm I'm Latino. I was I was born in Dominican Republic. I was trying to assimilate into this culture, and like, there was no there was no war at the time, 1995, when I enlisted, and like, um, what what does that look like? And then you have War. And then you have more war. um, And then you have a decade of or more decades. um, And then, like, you're done. Like, they say, thank you very much. And and you get out and you take off that uniform and you peel back those layers and like, oh, yeah, I'm a father and, you know, I'm a husband. And like, so so who is who is Francisco Martinez Cuello at at its core? And and that's what I've been trying to answer. Um, And what the beauty of it is like. It, sometimes it it doesn't come out, and this is what's great about these writing prompts. Um, you know, I wrote about this uh, mug that was given to me by a, by a, an, an old girlfriend, and I've had it for for decades. Um, and one day, when I was thinking about killing myself, um, I dropped the mug, and it and it, it and it shattered into a different pieces, and I, I mourned that cup. Um, and it was it was a long process but i didn't really think to write about it i didn't think about anything i was just crying um and then a year later i was at some generative workshop and we had a writing prompt and it just it came out and uh it came out within like 5 minutes um and we were we were supposed to share it and i shared it with the people and we were all crying and um and, and so like yeah so some of these things come out of you. They need to come out. Some things just need to simmer and and eventually they'll come out. And so like I trust that process now and I don't force it because
0: when I force it it doesn't come out right. What's it like for you to be a reporter and a journalist? I imagine I'm I'm completely projecting here. But I feel like when a person has a backlog of stories that they need to unpack and tell and deconstruct to then go tell somebody else's story. It's kind of annoying because you're like, dude, I'm dealing with my own shit and I, I, I'm, I'm marinating in my own juices right now. And it's hard to pull out of that and, and, um and go talk to somebody else. Has that been true for you? Did you find it an easy process to start finding other people's stories?
1: Well, I, for me, it makes me a better listener um, because I, I'm, I'm, I've got better empathy. You know, and 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 so like case in point, um, it was Veterans Day. uh, And and so I I went to the VFW here in Bethel and I wanted to write about veterans. And um, there was a couple of folks that um, haven't shared their stories with with anyone to the level that that I was able to 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 draw out of them, because maybe it's because of the shared experience um or for the fact that like i just made them comfortable and allow them to be vulnerable um and so I, I do i for me that i try to get to the essence of that story to 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 make it more palpable um universal And because again like we're, we're all suffering we're, we're all just trying to make it to the next day and so like how can how can what is this person's story who is this person and and i'm going to make you read it i'm going to make you listen to it and consume it um and 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 so that person's story lives on um and and so like that that's how i approach things and it's it's again it's all about healing my journey to healing and so like for me that's that satisfies me that that feeds me mm-hmm. that i'm able to tell important stories that even if it's just touches one person or it touches a whole community a state nationally um it doesn't matter to me as long as i'm able to do do it right and honor kyle and honor all those that have passed
0: and 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 be a good role model for my for my family and my daughters what actually is your beat out there in bethel what are you supposed to be covering what's your assignment well I'm, i'm i'm actually uh you know a science
1: writer a environmental writer um because to 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 me there's just like this abstract thing and i like to like break it down and and, and see you know that's the challenge for me that's what i enjoy um but here uh, it's a general news fellowship so it's just like the, the daily newscast um but I do being the sole reporter here. I do have freedom to chase my own stories, and so like I I tend to be more biased and 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 try to write stories with with solutions too. Like for me, it's just it's about it's not only about identifying a problem, but here are some possible solutions and and to give give the reader something or the listener something to to walk away with. Be like, hey, here's a problem, but here's a possible solution. Vice this whole negativity or this whole you know, one side or, or a slant. No, let's, let's approach it as objective as you can be. I know it's impossible, but, um, you know, let's, let's approach it and let's try to find solutions. Don't just keep reporting the same problem. You know, for example, like there's no, this is a, a, a damp area. Like it's not dry. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not illegal to, to drink, but, uh, you you can't buy it here, but you can, you can bring it in. But like, there's still a lot of, um, alcoholism there's still a lot of uh alcohol related incidences and so like i can't just keep reporting on such and such killed someone such and such had a domestic violence due to alcohol but what's what's the real problem here is it is it because of you know the systemic racism is it because of you know the the our relationship with uh, the indigenous community Um, the fact that there is no no hope, no lack of uh, uh, lack of resources, mental health, et cetera. Like, let's let's explore that and 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 see, like, if there could be a solution, or there may not, and let's identify that too.
0: How much does journalism scratch your itch? How much is that satisfying to you, therapeutically, creatively, um, even in the craft of writing? Does it Does it hit all the wickets for you, or are there still days where you're like? cool i covered that automobile accident cuz that was an important story it had to happen i don't feel creatively fulfilled but whatever i made my paycheck this week like how how does it how well does it scratch your riches
1: yeah that's that's good because i'm constantly i'm constantly asking myself <laughs> that question and and reflecting on it but i think i think you're right i i think i think i'm just like okay these are the things that i need to do to get out stuff like that um but then you i have my my cake right (laughs) and you're just like here's a long story that i'm 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 focusing on let me chip away at it can i can i do something about it today you know what's the interview like and 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 going out and interviewing them okay well the timing isn't right you know Uh, and so like that satisfies me as long as i'm making progress on my my long form Mm. Um, my future projects mm-hmm. um that's what satisfied me but like I'm also I, I don't don't um throw away what I'm 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 experiencing now because it, it all feeds into the writing right like writing is writing and so even if I hate the upside down p- pyramid I'm still trying to figure out what the heck a lead and nut graph are like who who does that And so, but like, yeah, sure. I understand it. You know, check in the box. I put all that thing. I got the newscast out. Cool. But like, I'm really focused on this 5,000 word piece that I'm thinking about.
0: Yeah. And is that what it is, is that you're working on longer term pieces or would you actively submit stuff even now?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to submit stuff for. Nationally, that is um, Alaska specific, but at the same time, um, for example, like climate change, like t- to be honest with you, like this is Alaska's ground zero for 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 climate change. This is a study in, in climate change because they they're already starting to uproot communities due to the, the sea level rise due to the lack of mm-hmm. um, of snow ice. Um, and, and so like, what well, you know, you should be paying attention to this because this is going to happen more, more often in, in the near future. And so,
0: yeah. Gotcha. I want to do what I always forget to do, which is kind of start at the beginning and build this and you've alluded to it. So I want to try and drill into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. When did you leave DR and come to the States? Yeah, I think I was like. Three or four. I was born in seventy-seven.
1: So I think nineteen eighty, eighty-one. Uh okay. came in. Uh I think I think it was due to I I don't know. I, I mean I, I need a fact checker, but like I'm pretty sure there was a hurricane. Um and that's why we we left Dominican Republic. So Okay.
0: Where did you end up going? Uh
1: in New York. I I I'm all around the city. And then when I got she's I, I don't know when i say well we 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 lived in new jersey and new york um but then when i was i was 5 or something 6 we moved out to long island cuz i was just uh uh it was just it was more affordable than than the mm-hmm. city and uh yeah so my mom uh, my dad my mom and dad divorced when i i think when i was born i'm not sure oh wow uh
0: so so it was your mom the whole time that le- that you went with from DR yeah okay. yeah I, uh
1: yeah i was which which is which is interesting cuz i have uh, two older sisters and and a mom so i literally just grew up with women and uh that was that was an experience
0: <laughs> i don't doubt it
1: and where did you move to in long island yeah eventually we settled in patchogue out there in suffolk county
0: okay
1: all right yeah.
0: so close to the hamptons almost to the hamptons Right? Sure. <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I no. am I Long it's Island still, to me, I, I I'm still very fuzzy on Long Island, like any city person.
1: Yeah, I think I think still think it's like 45 minutes away from, Is it? from the okay.
0: Antons, yeah. okay. All right. How'd you how did you adjust to it? How did you like living out there?
1: Yeah, I mean it was it was tough. It, being the only brown kid or a few brown kids uh that were there, they were mostly Puerto Rican and Dominican like myself uh i was in esl for a, se- uh, a moment the english as a second language um they they thought i was um i should be held back uh but that's because i i didn't talk i didn't really mm. talk at all mm-hmm. and so um that's a so that was pretty interesting um and and yeah like it was tough to 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 find my niche sorry i have to move my phone no you're good uh, Um, I was just trying to, um, figure out where, where I fit in and, um, who, who I could talk to. I didn't feel really connected to the Latino community. Um, I don't know if, cause I was quote unquote too, too smart or, you know, too, uh, too nerdy. I think that's probably more
0: accurate. Was it, were you, were you, were you in buried in the books a lot?
1: Yeah, I just liked, I like math and sciences and, um, I liked, I liked reading. Um, I didn't really write then obviously, but, uh, yeah, it's just, I, there was something about intelligence that that I was attracted to. Huh. And,
0: um, those, and you liked kid, education.
1: Yeah. And I, like, I really loved education and those folks were, those kids in those community were more out about going out and like having a good time and like destroying stuff and, you know, my mom was very man, my mom, my mom like, you know, she ran a tight ship, so like I couldn't even hang out anyway. You know, she's like, if I didn't get an A, I mean she would, you know, give me a, a good ass whooping. Yeah. Um so, so like it had to be A's. There was no B, there is no such thing as B's. If not, I'd you know, I'd get the i get the chancleta,
0: you know, I could get, yeah. <laughs> yeah. get
1: the I get the ass whooping in. So
0: yeah. Did, did you did your family as a whole, your sisters, your mother, were they fitting in? with the Dominican community out there or did they feel kind of isolated also yeah that's a good
1: question i think my my sister my older sisters she's a writer and um she she writes about this um but yeah she didn't fit in at all uh she's and she's darker than than me um or was i mean shit i'm i'm pale right now um, <laughs> but uh but yeah she she writes about this and her experience, and I didn't know she was going through such a difficult time, but um as 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 a latina um so i I can't imagine that and my sister my my she's only a year older than I she was she's uh light-skinned uh green eyes, you know, blonde hair, so uh she she had no problems um assimilating, but uh yeah, my sister and I,
0: yeah it was pretty rough. What was so different about your family? That you weren't that that there was such a rough assimilation with the other Latino families in the area. What made that difficult? Why were you all why did you all feel that way? It definitely had to do with my mom. Um,
1: she didn't approve of our friends. Um that's just I mean, there's still what, racism within the Latino community, right? Like I right. I could I couldn't hang out with uh darker people than, than I was, you know, like my mom would, would say something about that. (laughs) And it was just like, you know, and, and you, at the time you feel like, like it's nothing. But then as you, as you get older, you realize like, that's, that's an issue. Like, you know, you don't feel comfortable around people, certain people, um, you know, and, and you try to, try to figure out why. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, it's just my mom was a source of, of a lot of issues um, that I'm still grappling with. Uh, but uh, yeah, I hope that answered the question.
0: I don't no, that it, it does it. So to jump way way ahead, is that is, is there a lot or a little of that in the genesis of Salsa Night as a play? The the that there was an inherent the inherent racial tensions between Haitians and Dominicans was, is that kind of at the core of that? Is that how, how much of that plays into the play?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely one of those things that I needed to explore. Right. Like, um I think that's the whole, that's the crux of, of salsa night and trying to figure out where you fit in, in this institution um that is, you know, is difficult on on minorities on on women obviously um and so like we my i think there was this thing i if you go back into the history of dominican republic they have this thing where they're trying to like you know cleanse the race or or you know talk about trying to get your children or your offspring to be lighter and 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 hence, why my sister, my middle sister, was treated differently than my older sister, and why I was treated differently, um, because she was fair skinned. So,
0: um, it's funny. I, I want to stay with the play just for a second. I want to do a lot more on the play, but mm-hmm. taking this way out of out of chronological order, <clears throat> it's funny because uh, in each of our two full length playwriting competition iterations we had award-winning plays that were about the tensions between Haitians and Dominicans Mm -hmm. which I find to be really funny um, because the first time uh, in the first competition we read Finesia Farrell's uh, Lucky and obviously Finesia comes from a Haitian family yeah and it it was it was about it from from that point of view and then when you had Salsa Night uh, and I was like I mean so creatively and just as far as subject matter goes, there's a lot that's appealing about that because it is a story that so few outside of those communities track or are even conscious of. So mm-hmm. subject matter-wise, that's awesome. As it's interesting stuff and not predictable. It's not a it's not a well-plowed field yet. You know, it's like, hey, there's a lot to mine here. What I also found interesting though is that you from the Dominican point of view and her from the Haitian point of view um, there seemed to be <laughs> you guys were not in diametrical opposition um, and I was all ready for it I was like oh hey cool are we, are we going go one <laughs> way or another um, for you I mean let, let me I guess uh, I'm trying to I'm I'm saying a lot of words in search of a question because um, obviously I love salsa night I, I think it's an incredibly I I loved just about everything about it. I, I can't, it, it scratched so many itches for me. Um, so without going full fanboy, I guess talk a little bit about the genesis of it. I know it originally, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe originally it was a creative nonfiction piece, right? And correct. Then, but if, that creative nonfiction piece, if I remember correctly, didn't have the characters. The characters, that was a you insertion that you kind yeah. of then brought them in. What was the genesis of turning it into a play? And I know you talk, there's a, I should say, just for the audience, like you wrote a nice little explainer paragraph at the start of the play, but tell everybody about that and where the idea for the play itself actually came from.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I, well, first, that, 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 um, that like short creative nonfiction piece, it was, um, I, I want it was an exploration in this we, right? And so, like, I wanted people to understand what it's like to be part of this group. Um, That's, and but it's not, it's not all like what what you see in the news or see in movies about killing, etc. There's a lot of downtime in deployments, and like, so what do you do during these downtimes? You know, and and so like. These things happen in these bases, and you hear about it in these outlying sites, and you're just like, "Man, they they're, they're getting crazy out there in that operating base." Like, right. I want to try, I want to go out there and experience because there there was a situation in 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 Afghanistan that kind of kind of stuck with me. Um, it was it was like this interaction between me and 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 uh, this other person. And, um, this person was de- departing and, um, and, and, and she came up to me and I was trying to like get my kid off because like you have, you have your flack and right in the flack, like right where my heart is, I had my, my pistol. Um, because just that I was in a vehicle all day, so I couldn't really have my pistol on the, um, on my hip or my leg because of, for fear of falling off, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so like, when, when you're in a vehicle all day, it's just better to have it up there on your chest. And so I had it up there. And so I'm like, it was a really warm day and I'm just trying to get this gear off and say goodbye to this person. And, and, uh, you know, she comes up and, and, and hugs me, um, without letting me finish taking off my, uh, Kevlar, my, my flack. And so like, I feel this pressure against my pistol, um, But I can't feel this person's heartbeat. I can't feel this person's Mm. flesh. Um, And that really bothered me. Like it still bothers me because I look back at that and it's always in my dreams or my nightmares. And it's just like – and I finally figured it out. It's because we we just want to be touched. We just want to be held when we're in these moments, in these experiences, because we may not get out of it. Right. And so here is this thing where we cannot touch each other in this combat zone. Even the, the corpsman, when you're bleeding out, he's wearing gloves. Right. And so like, but then like you hear about, um, you know, like, um, Dr. Heidi Kraft in, 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 um, Rule number two, she talks about um, uh, Corporal Dunham's in the expectant room, and he's not going to make it. And so they ask her, Dr. Heidi Kraft, to go to the expectant room, which is just a closet, and hold his hand and let him transition. And so here's this task that you're given, and you're actually touching this person. You're you're touching this person during his last breath when not— his family members cannot be there. Like, th- like, think about that experience and how it would have impact you. And, um, you know, he actually squeezed her hand back, and that's what brought her to to get help. They were able to stabilize him and medevac him. And uh, if if you don't know the story, and he won, he was the re- uh, Medal of Honor recipient. He didn't make it, um, and so she essentially, Dr. Heidi Kraft, was the last person to touch this young man who was what 19 and and so how do you how do you reconcile that how do you, how do you unpack that and so that that kind of stayed with me and and you know kind of percolating or, or 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 simmering in the background and then when covid hit and it was just like holy cow we can't there's similar situations we can't touch someone we have to keep our distance it, and, 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 but we have all this technology and we're able to talk to someone. Mm. And so like really com- confusing your, your senses. And I was like, there it is. That's salsa night. This is why we were driven to go to salsa night. Mm. It wasn't, it wasn't really animalistic. It really wasn't primal. It was just to, to touch, to forget for a moment that we're in this combat zone and that we're fucked. We're going to die uh, so might as well just have fun, uh, if only for a moment, before I get escorted
0: into the expectant room. So you could have told that story without invoking the Dominican-Haitian tension then, right? That could have just yep. been a straightforward story about humanity. What What was the conscious decision to then layer the racial tension piece onto it, or... or How planned was that Um, and how difficult was it to not lose the thread of what you were trying to say when you now have a couple of more balls in the air that you have to juggle?
1: Yeah, I I thought it was too, I didn't want it to be too simple. Um, And also again, with the challenge um, I like my characters to be layered and complex, just like we all are. And, you know, obviously we had, the, it was also around that time right the George floyd and 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 um black lives matter movement um and I was having these thoughts and these feelings and was just like well you know I just kept thinking about Haiti and Dominican Republic and trying to understand it more because my mom didn't you know they don't teach you these things um, right and, and and so like it's not part of any curriculum. And so as I was reading it and trying to understand it and, um, it, it just became more apparent. Like, again, going back to my identity, who, who am I? Yeah. And, and I try to give distance to, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I was trying to give distance to the character, Manuel, um, and it, so you can stop me. And if you, if you feel like I'm going, sure. but like, I didn't want Manuel to, to be me. Um, mm. but as, as I kept writing, I, subconsciously like, and, and, um, it became me, um, and my relationship with myself and, and my relationship with my identity and being Dominican and what it's like to be me, Dominican institutionalized, um, uh, And part of this bigger machine that is great at ending lives and destroying and, um, destroying and, and, and killing the earth and, and, and what it's like to be a part of that when initially I just wanted to do good, right. To help people. Um, and so essentially it was, it was a discussion on that. Like, and I had this moment where, um. I don't even remember writing it this one scene um, it's it's towards the end. And um, I don't remember reading it, but uh, I had a table reading at the La Jolla playwriters workshop of the veterans playwriting workshop. And um, the characters like the, the guy who's acting is incredible. And he was, he was looking at me during the entire time and he was reading what I was what I wrote and what I was saying. And it freaked me out because um he was he was like telling me it was okay to like quit, to commit suicide. And that really fucked me up. And so yeah, it was just I don't remember that. And I always thought that was bullshit that writers talk about. But it was like, it was a complete out-of-body experience. I'm like, I don't remember writing that, but it, obviously it needed to be said and I needed to experience that. Um, and and what a gem, like what a gift that was. Uh,
0: so yeah, yeah, I just wanted to say that. What was the takeaway for you in that moment? So you say it's a gift. I mean, obviously that's a pretty, I mean, it's a powerful moment, but what was the epiphany for you? if you that's what you're getting that he's saying it's okay to quit it's okay to give up how did you interpret that what did that mean to you then that i've
1: i've got more work to do um, yeah. in both uh life um and mental health but but also to be vulnerable as an artist um because that's where the magic happens um and i and I, and that's what i said i was just like i'm i'm not afraid to go down deep into that dark hole because i i know that there's light down there somewhere and 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 that's what happened like that that's what i'm saying like i was just so blessed and so proud that i was able to create this thing out of out of you know how many decades of pain Um, and for me it was just like it was so worth it uh and so that's what I'm, i'm saying like I'm not afraid now. I'm not afraid to go there. I want to go there. I want to roll up my sleeves. Let's let's get dirty, and let's let's bleed. Let's open up that wound. Let it fester. Let it let
0: it breathe. And and that that's what healing is about for me. Did you feel like you'd been um, repressing that up until then in your writing? That you'd been avoiding some of that stuff. One hundred percent. Okay. One hundred percent. I just
1: it needed that. I needed that. Was that whole journey led up to it, and 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 that's when I knew I was just like I can do this forever. Like I can, I can mm-hmm. write forever. I want to yeah. write forever. I want to write these types of stories, and it just really motivated me. Like Salsa Night for me really motivated me. Um, I I wasn't confident about my writing before that that, but like that whole experience just changed me as an artist.
0: <laughs> what led you? to writing it as a play. Was that the first play you'd ever written?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was my second play. Um, I had written, I'd been part of the, uh, again, the Veterans Writing Workshop in La Jolla, uh, at the La Jolla Playhouse um, for a while now. I want to say like four or five years, maybe even six. Um, but it was just like with each iteration or with with each class that we do, um, and we ended up with a cohort, uh, Sheree, Sheree mm. is, angles are in our, was in our core cohort. Right. Um, and so we're given these, you know, we start from scratch and we're like, Hey, what, what are you thinking about writing about? And, um, and so I had a bunch of things that I was thinking about, but for me, it was just like, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something with movement and with dance um, because, like, that's so important to to my culture. Um, and I was just like, "Let's explore that." Like, why? Why? Why should I be afraid to to do something that involves dancing? Um, and and again, they created a space to to allow that and be like, "Hey, let's do it. Let's let's go through it." And and I did, and it was it was just an amazing experience
0: so let's back up even before that what led you to playwriting in general i mean that's not a traditional path for writers even to go down why did you gravitate towards playwriting in any way shape or form
1: yeah that's a good question it's just to i just i want to i feel like i feel like i'm an artist and i, I think i'm not afraid to try anything as an artist um you know they they asked me to to act and and I did and I I felt mm-hmm. like I was terrible but it really helped me with writing because I I understand what the what the character was going through and it was because of the 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 writing and you know and so like I put myself out there all the time not necessarily to be like the best, or to to learn a new trade, or possibly gravitate towards that and switch gears. No, like writing is writing, and art is writing, and 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 writing is art. And so, like, why not throw yourself in all these different mediums and and try that? Because it enriches you. Uh, it, it, it it helps with your experience in the human condition, and it allows you to to portray that. Um, in, in 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 whatever form, you decide to put it in, and so yeah, and and, and I've been fortunate with you guys with the Loye Playhouse, like they had that opportunity, and and um, it's it the people are wonderful, the cohort yeah. of, of writers, you always learn something new, and you know those we all had different experience, gay, straight, black, white, you know LGBTQA plus, all that stuff, We're just in this beautiful spot where people are people and and human and 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 they've experienced love and loss and and tragedy and trauma um through a different lens and so so i'm all for it and so if, like if there's not you know i mean i'll try poetry i'm not good at it but
0: I'll, right, but, right. I'll, but i'll try it you've talked about some of the epiphanies and some of the the high points of playwriting what's the rush you get from playwriting versus the rush you get from other forms of writing? Is it different? Is it better? Is it worse? What is that? What is the difference for you? Yeah. Uh, I, I I will say that in my opinion,
1: playwriting is the best in the sense that when you hear these characters say, you know, these people, these actors come to life and and you hear it and you, 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 hear their interpretation of your words. Right. And, um, and it's a journey and it's a journey you share together and it's just so special. It's so it's 3d, right. And it's, it's just, it's wild. Like it, the payoff is huge. Uh, when I would hear these actors say these words and laughing, when, like mm. yeah that's it mm. you're supposed to laugh there mm. and or you're supposed to feel this way there like yes i'm like and it's like it's instant feedback right whereas in like if i'm doing it on um on print i don't know what's going on in your head uh yeah. but but there it's it's right in front of you and it's instant feedback and
0: the, the gratification and payoff is huge let me get back on course uh chronologically when you were about to graduate from high school what did you think you were going to do? what were you aiming to do? what were you aspiring to do?
1: Yeah, well I mean I was I was gonna go to well my goal was to to attend the, one of the academies um mm. the uh, my my SAT scores were were complete trash um huh. so like I don't I don't blame the, the the rejection uh the Naval Academy told me to go pound sand. Air Force Academy didn't even, like, look at my application. But West Point was interesting. And so they called me up and I had uh, <laughs> this colonel, you know, to, to give you an idea how much of a punk I was as a as a teenager. Uh, the West Point guy, he's just like, you know, he, he's a, the dean of admissions colonel, you know, full bird colonel. And uh, he calls me up and he's just like, so you you're interested in the military academy? I'm like, yeah. All right. Well, your scores are a little low. I'm like, yep. He's like, so you'll. I'm thinking about you go to a two year prep school, and you, I said, okay, and then you'll go to 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 West Point for like four years, and then you'll, you know, receive your commission and you'll serve the army uh, for for six years, something like that. I said, okay, so let so let me get this straight, Colonel. (laughs) I'm going to do two years at a prep school, four years at. At West Point. So that, right. That's six years. Yeah. And then I'm going to do six years on top of that to pay back the military. He's like, yeah. So, so that's 12 years into an organization that I don't even know if I'm sure I want to be a part of. And he's just like, yeah. I was like, yeah, no, no, thanks, man. Go fuck yourself.
0: And I hung up. (laughs) Did you tell him to go fuck himself?
1: i said fuck you or something i know i said fuck you it's like because because i just thought it, and 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 looking back i was just like man what an asshole that's that was a real that was a real dick move um but like i i really wanted to be a marine anyway um and and it just college was was on the side like meaning like i wasn't ready for college um i was You know, I was, you know, as from my, your, my interaction, just that I just spoke about, I wasn't ready for college. I wasn't mature enough. And so what, what do immature teenagers do? They join the Marine Corps, right? (laughs) So, uh,
0: this at this point in high school, were you still somebody that was, were you still a nerd? Were you still into education or had you become something else? Were you now into sports, into just hanging out? Like, what was your thing? Who were you at that point? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean I was still a nerd. I was an aspiring nerd. Um and and but I was still I was playing football and then I wrestled a little bit. And um uh yeah, so that that was important to me, but I, I just knew I I knew I didn't have what it takes to be successful. Or the or the, to be honest with you, I would argue what was underlying it, it was the financial. Situation, right? Like, so my family was dirt poor and I saw, you know, I have two older sisters. So I saw them struggling in college, you know, eating ramen noodle. And I'm just like, dude, I'm tired of eating ramen noodle. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. Three, hot, three hots in a cot in the military. Like, I'm good.
0: <laughs> how did you even, how did the military first even come into your aperture? How did you even find out about it? How, how did it become a feasible option?
1: Yeah, well, sp- specifically the Marine Corps is because of their commercials, right? Like, you okay. know, the, yeah. the, 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 it's just like, you know, I think, what was that one? I think it was the night one. It was right? the night, was on- right? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. In the 90s, it was the <laughs> yeah. night. So I said, I want to do that. Like, that's the coolest <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, how much did you know about it going in? How, how much had you really gotten in the weeds of what it meant to be a Marine or be in the military in general?
1: Yeah, so I was an Air Force junior ROTC. For like three years, um, and and that obviously that's military light, uh, but uh, you know we were we were given access to all the different services, and um, I re- I remember I walked into the, the Marine Corps recruiter and uh, it was some staff sergeant, and he he had a he had a, a sailor's cover right the 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 white. Yeah. Cover. I don't even. I don't even know how to call a it. Dixie anymore. cap. Well, little yeah. Dixie cap. Little thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he was. He had a sharpie and he wrote Fido on it, and so and he put water in it and he put it out there like it was the dog's thing out on in front, and I just could not stop laughing. And then he had to, like had action figures on his um, on his uh, desk, and he was putting them all in different like pornographic positions. I'm like. I'm like, dude, this is guy's a kid. I mean, he was old. He was an old, he was like, well, old back then is it was <laughs> right. It was, it was in his 30s. Yeah. Uh uh, but man, he was just a blast. And he 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 was just like, listen, you want to join the Marine Corps? Cool. If not, no problem. Uh, I don't care, you know. Um, and it was just like that, that attraction and like that that camaraderie that they all shared, because they were all just pulling pranks on on the other different services. Um but also being honest, like 100 percent honest is just like, hey, man, hmm. like this is going to suck. Uh, but if you endure it, it'll probably be the best times of your life. Um, we, you know, I'm you probably be a grunt. You'll probably be this, you know, you know, just literally breaking everything down. Like, you know, but you'll be part of the greatest fighting force, you know, the world has ever seen the United States Marine Corps. And so um, that that attracted me and and that level of camaraderie. great Because it was. It's essentially a family, and I didn't have really a family, or right? I didn't feel like I belonged to a family. And here was this group of misfits that was accepting me as a, as a family, and so like that was a no brainer. I I signed up. I was sixteen. I actually needed my mother's signature. I on my sixteenth birthday, I was down there and I, I and I signed my, my the papers, and my mom was not happy. Uh, she she had to she had to sign for me.
0: <laughs> really, she was not happy. Yeah. What did she want for you?
1: Yeah, just like every other, you know, immigrant kid, be a doctor, be an engineer, be a, be a scientist, uh, contribute in, in that sense.
0: So when you signed up at 16, did you push off then? Did you go to basic then? Or, were you, or was it like a delayed entry thing?
1: Yeah, it was a delayed entry program. But okay. like I, um, it was good. It was better because I had, you know, ship date. Like I had a better chance of my mos my recruiter was talking to me because you know i wanted to be a ground pounder and he's just like dude you're signing and i think i signed a six-year contract i believe not if it was five but he's just like you 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 don't want to be a ground pounder for six years (laughs) you know he's just like yeah i i cannot and he was good he was just like i'm not i'm not going to give you the infantry contract um it's just you 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 you, you're not going to make it you know It's gonna be tough. And I appreciated that honesty, you know, in in, in hindsight, you know, because that that you know <laughs> that would have been a that would have been a difficult challenge, which which I'm sure I would have been up for it. But it was just like, yeah, it definitely changed the trajectory of my of my life, my career when a, when I when I did end up at my like aviation
0: maintenance or whatever contract. Right. You know? Is that what it was? Aviation maintenance? Yeah. So what so since you signed the papers at sixteen, did you go to boot camp at eighteen? Was it a two-year thing, or was it like a no, couple months sem- later?
1: Yeah, as soon as I graduated, which was okay. I was seventeen, um, wow. I shipped out. Yeah, wow.
0: So when you get to boot camp, surprised, or was it exactly what you thought it was going to be?
1: Yeah, I was. I was completely surprised because, um, ag- again, I was an idiot. Uh, in the sense like, well, that, not only that my recruiter was just like, you have no problem, you know, cause I was into sports. I was athletic. I was running a lot. So I, I did it. I was running at the time, sub six minute miles. And so, uh, he was just like, you're fine. PT wise. We, you know, they would have to go to these, we to those, uh, weekly meetings, um, and PT. Uh, but it turns out like, as I get to boot camp, I should have went to those meetings because they were learning stuff like the general orders, they were learning uh, stuff about yeah. the uh, rifle, and I was just like, "Wait, what? Like, you guys already know your general orders and this and the?" And so I, I, I started to unravel a little bit because I'm like, "Dude, I got a, you know, they give you that stupid knowledge book, and and you have to learn that whole thing, and these kids already knew it, and so I like I wasted a whole year, that I could have known those back and forth with which would have made my life a lot easier in boot camp. Instead, I was just getting you know." my my stuff
0: handed to me because right. I had no general order number three or whatever. So you go in, you're in for six years and you enlisted in 95. Yeah. Yeah. So you were what, at the end of your first contract when 9-11 happened? Or were you starting another contract? Yeah.
1: So I had, uh, while I was, so I, I went, my first duty station was Okinawa. Then I went to uh, North Carolina In uh, MCAS New River, right? You know, in Jacksonville, Um, and then I was fortunate enough to go through the screening team for Marine Security Guard duty, and so I had to. That's the embassy security, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I had to do the. uh, I had to do another um, contract. I had to reenlist, and so I went to Kampala, Uganda. Was my first tour. Was uh, really. 18 months. And then I went to, I supported in Dar es Salaam for like a a hot minute and then went to, um, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where I eventually, that's where I met Kyle. Mm -hmm. And I was, and then I eventually became the assistant detachment commander there. Um, and that's when I applied for the, uh, Marine enlisted commissioning education program, MESEP. Um, and so I applied to that and I, I got accepted. Um, and so, After my tour of duty ended, I went to San Diego to uh, to attend the MSEP school, the prep school, which was there at the time. Now it's in Quantico. Um, And so, yeah, I went there, and I went to my job, quote unquote, was to go to school and be a student. I went to Cal State San Marcos for four years. I was in, so I got there in two thousand and one. And wow, we're at drill at uh, because part of the requirements you have to go to the NROTC, right, Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps. And that at the that's at the school at University of San Diego. And we're in formation and uh 11 happened. And, you know, obviously all that uh changed everyone. A lot everyone wanted to drop on request, uh, but we couldn't um due to TCOM or uh and they said you will finish this program and you will become officers, commission officers, because we need we're gonna need officers and boy, were they right. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. So then I still had to finish school, received my commission in 2005 after I graduated by computer science degree, and uh, went to the basic school uh, for six months, uh, Fox Company, and then received my MOS, which was a communications officer, and went to another six month school there in Quantico, mm-hmm. and then I and then I finally hit the fleet as a second lieutenant, uh, what in 2000. Six, late 2006, maybe 2007 at MCAS Miramar.
0: So I want to know the difference between you post 9-11 stuck, if you will, in school, and then when you actually hit the fleet. Were you, was it a transition of being really gung-ho when 9-11 happened and now going, hey, I'm kind of over it and I haven't even gotten in it yet when you actually hit the fleet? Or I'm just trying to project what that might have been like in your head, the difference, because so much had happened in those ensuing five years. Yeah, it was a lot. A lot of anxiety.
1: Um, it was actually really a lot of anxiety, and a lot of self doubt that uh, I couldn't do this. Um, this is real. People's lives are on the line. Um, am I really? Am I really suited for this? Am I worthy of leading Marines into combat? Um, because it's different right when you're in when you're in that platoon but man that's that's the strangest feeling i ever encountered being in front of the platoon during a company formation battalion formation and you're you're literally alone out there in front of your Marines executing the orders right that are given to you by the commanding officer um and I never felt so alone in my life uh and I I, I never felt so scared in my life like, I don't, because the stakes were so high, you know, we had already received reports, Fallujah happened, right? Mm-hmm. Phantom Fury, Fallu- mm-hmm. Fallujah one, 1 and 2, I mean, you hear these heroic stories of uh, Marines, of what the, what they did, obviously all the service members, what they did, the incredible things that they accomplished, and the amount of lives that they saved, the ultimate sacrifice, and you're just like, am I worthy to be in that conversation? Should I be in that conversation? And and so that's the thought. That's that's what haunts me. Like you know, it wasn't that I I was gung ho. It was gung ho in the sense that I was trying to absorb everything I could. Learning how to read maps. Learning about really paying attention to fire support and air support. And holy shit, you need to to learn the medevac. You have got to you have got to know no, medevac. in and out.
0: Yeah. You know.
1: Yes, you have to. Um. And that and wow, like that's weight. That's weight like you can't for a kid. I mean, think about it. We're all still kids, 20 years old, and, and that to be given that, that level of responsibility, it's hard to wrap your head, your head around that. So yeah, that's that was that was my life.
0: That was my life. When you first got the orders uh, to go back to school and to become a commissioned officer, did you think, now not knowing that 9-11 was going to happen or anything like that, did you mm-hmm. think it was going to be a career at that point? Or did you no. think it was just the next it was just the next step? Yeah. 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 Okay. I,
1: I've always I've always wanted to go to college. Um, I always knew that I was gonna go to college. It was just a matter of when. And so like, oh, I'll get my my uh computer science degree, I'll go work mm-hmm. for some ridiculous corporation, put some money in the bank and just laugh after four years of my payback
0: time in the in the military. Sure. So now when you get orders to go to Iraq, you're now what more than a decade. Into your military career, are you like shit? Uh, I, I'm going to have to do 20, like, or or are you looking forward to it? Are you like, yeah, I want to do 20? What's your What's your head at?
1: Yeah, no, I I was open to it um, in in the sense that like, okay, well, whatever the the path leads me to, I'll, I'll take. Um, but Iraq really was a terrible experience, um, and it it was because of the team leaders, the team leadership. I was part of a transition team. The top three folks were relieved of duty because they weren't uh, doing what they were supposed to. They were trying to go out and hunt and kill Al Qaeda when it wasn't really our mission. It was it was uh, to train and, and mentor and advise the Iraqi border defense forces and um, we lost our way. So they got relieved. And then I became, quote-unquote, in charge uh, for a hot second. And then we got absorbed by another transition team. And I was on there for a year. I was there, a year-long transition team. And so uh, then we moved down south to the Saudi border um, during the Hajj. And, um, yeah, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm, I'm done. I don't believe in this. Um, like, what are we doing here? We're, we're just, this is ridiculous. I just lost all faith in in, in in the military leadership, all faith in the mission, um, but the people were still good. But also I was just like, I'm a liability because if I'm not 100% in, I'm going to get someone killed. And I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't I don't want that on my conscience. So I made a, I made a decision to get out and um, I was at the depot, you know, I was able to get out from Iraq and uh, my next duty station was uh, MCRD uh, yeah. uh, as a series commander. And um, as I was there, I was just like, yeah, I'm just doing my time to hit my requirement and I'm getting out. Uh, It was like 13 years in and people thought I was crazy. Uh, But I I just, I knew it wasn't good. And, uh, but then what, what changed was uh, the transfer of the GI Bill. Uh, That, that pushed, that legislation was pushed through. I think it was 09, maybe Mm -hmm. 10, 09. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they pushed that through and it was just like, well, I mean, let's, let's transfer this, these benefits to my daughters and it'll take me to 17 and I'm, I'd be dumb to get out then I might as well finish at 20. And so that, that was, that was essentially the, the think my thinking
0: behind it. So it was pragmatic the whole way. Yeah. Was, um, what year was that in, in Iraq that you were there? That first deployment.
1: The entire fall of 2000 and. Eight, so it was january to january Ooh.
0: 8 8 uh, uh, january 08 uh, january 09 yes Wow. yes yeah wow that's a yeah that's a interesting time to be there yeah uh-huh. that definitely was the low point <laughs> i think that's definitely the low point <laughs> in the last 20 years uh of almost all the combat theaters i i, I would say um did you write it out the whole way unscathed or did you go back on another deployment after that, after you'd kind of resigned yourself to just putting one foot in front of the other?
1: Yeah. Another opportunity came through in, um, in 2011 while I was on the depot. Um, it was towards the end of my, my tour at the depot. And, um, it was an IA billet, an individual augment. And they were just like, Hey, uh, we need, we need, (laughs) I need a warm body. Uh, but they had to have these requirements, right? You had to have, like, a, a TS clearance, TSSEI. You had to have experience uh, with, uh, like, protocol as a protocol officer. I think that's that's what the billet called it for. And so, like, I had – I was – I worked at the, uh, the G3 at the time, and that uh, dealt with the um, big – movements of the of the base like high visibility or any kind of event that the the depot puts on and uh the commandant came through and um i think it was amos yeah yeah it was it was mm-hmm. it was it was uh general amos anyway he came down and then it was general bailey who was in charge of the uh the mcrd and uh you know so i was in charge of that and I was setting up the visit, et cetera, and it, it went off without a hitch, no complaints. Um, and they, I told them, I was just like, well, I did have this type of experience. And so they're like, yeah, okay. Um, and they sent me there for seven months as the uh, the protocol officer. But it turns out it was a, a mission commander position for the uh, personal s- security detail or PSD for then uh, General Petraeus and uh, General Allen's uh, uh joint visitors Bureau so all the high Viz four stars and you know uh, or even general officers visiting into Kabul um got a, the mission Commander you know make sure that they go around and to all their different meetings um and 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 make sure that they get there on time and so like I was the distinguished visitors that I was in charge of was then the SecDef who was both Gates at the time and then the next SecDef who was um Leon Panetta, uh other four star generals, the commandant, um mm-hmm. the, the the I'm sorry, the chief of staff, right? The,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the the chairman the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staffs, et cetera. So like, yeah, and so like that was that was an interesting experience. I actually thought it was gonna be a I wanted to be a Fobbit. You know, I was just like, I wanna know what it's like to be a Fobbit. And so like I that's why I took the position. Uh turns out I I was like fob light (laughs) because I would have, I'd have to go through and and go to these remote sites and places where like all these important uh, meetings needed to occur. And so I was just like,
0: again, they got me, they lied to me. (laughs) Was it all in the cluster? Was all in the Kabul cluster or did you, did you also go out into the hinterlands?
1: Yeah, it was, um, I all of mine maintained, stayed in the Kabul cluster area. Um, other, other people, for example, the guy next to me who was another marine he uh he got to take mattis who was the then sencom commander to to all the outlying sites to mm-hmm. i think i think that's when the surge was going on then right and then Sangin. Mm-hmm. um so he had to take the, him to there and so they got to see all that stuff and i was kind of bummed i didn't get to the, do that but uh, yeah i mean i was i was fine just i had my hands full just right.
0: being in the cobble cluster how did you feel um Contrast, if you will, for me, coming back from each of your deployments, the difference between coming back from Iraq and coming back from Afghanistan, a couple of years apart, very different experiences. What changed? What was the same? Where where was your head at coming back from each of those?
1: Yeah, it's my. Well, first, I I lost I lost thirty pounds in Iraq. <laughs> um, I went from one eighty five to one fifty five because we were eating MREs or um, those. Those types of rations, the the heat rations, the heated rations, or whatever it's called. Um, and so, like, I, I lost a lot of weight. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, I neglected my, my relationships uh, and, for, and compartmentalized my feelings because um, I didn't talk to my kids that year um, because it just, it wasn't healthy for me in the sense that, like, I would just break down and and lose it every time I would talk to them. So, um, which is probably why it's portrayed in Salsa Night uh, the way yeah. it is, uh, yeah. because because of that whole nine second delay and you know they were young at the time anyway, so they didn't really understand like why aren't you talking, Dad? And I'm just like right. I'm talking, I'm here, I'm here. And then um, yeah, so that that about killed me. Um, a lot of friction because I'm still being trying to understand what it's like to be a man right because you, you know it's like growing up fatherless like what what, what what is the definition of a man what is the definition of father what is the definition you know coming in with broken relationships uh you know like seeing my with my mother and, and father and like so like how, how, what's it like to be a, a good partner and um and so yeah it's just it was bad. I was angry, I was I was yelling a lot um, at everyone, uh, and that was in Iraq, and that's when I knew I needed to go to therapy, but I still didn't go to therapy, uh, got to Afghanistan, got back. Well, I, I went to Afghanistan, and I had trouble sleeping. Um, I had night terrors, uh, right. and so I was just, I went to the corpsman, and I was like, hey, can you just give me like Ambien or whatever? Yeah. And uh, they refused to give me that, and they said, "You need to go to talk to the shrink." And I was just like, "I'm not talking to the shrink," and uh, so that you know they wouldn't give me any kind of meds. Uh, and then it it compounded itself, right? When I got back, and I was just yelling at everyone. Uh, I didn't feel like doing anything. And, and oh, by the way, I'm still an officer, right? So you're expected to perform a certain way, to do certain tasks. Uh, so finally, I went to. I went to the psychiatrist to get medicated first, and then I finally went to to therapy because, uh, again, I was responsible for so many people and so many things. And I, if my head wasn't on straight, I just I didn't need that to, to to have it on my conscience that I, I because of my inability to fix myself, so and so is dead because of me. So, was that your last deployment,
0: the one to Afghanistan?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as you know, things started to really kind of die down after that, as far as the opportunities for, for Marines to deploy. Sure. Um, they were sending folks to Djibouti, um, right. uh, other stuff, and it's just like all, all that quote-unquote fun w- was over, um, unless you're an operator or something like that.
0: Right. When you retired, how'd you feel? Did you feel? And I, I'm, I'm going to give a little bit of context because uh, I'm interested in a couple of different aspects. I think there's a temptation after a long career to be burned out and to just go. I need to be in a cabin drinking a fifth of Beam for a while. Um, but it seems like, and again, just basing this off, you know, looking at your website and 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 the little we've talked and and, and what I've been able to read. It seemed like, though, you were really fired up. You had a burr up your ass. There was stuff you wanted to unpack, like you were aggressive about getting right out out for it. And I was like, what's fascinating, well, I mean, to be perfectly frank, what was fascinating to me about you on paper was like, here's a dude that's had a 20-year career and came out firing, not wallowing, not taking some years off and all that. That was very interesting. But again, this is just what I'm picking up on paper. For you, actually, in it, where was your head at when you retired? Was a sense of relief, like "Holy shit, I made 20 years! I can't believe it! I'm happy! I'm relieved! Grateful!" Like, where what were you thinking? What was the experience like for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I was burnt out, but i I also didn't want to I also didn't want to stop being a marine um, in in the sense that like. I felt like I finally hit my stride where I was helping people like no kidding helping people helping marines um like getting them the help that they that they needed uh like you know these getting some one of my marines meritoriously promoted um you know and it, and and like retaining these these next generation of leaders and these warriors both men and women um and like I was you know, with, with, with my writing, nevertheless, you know, cause mm-hmm. if, if, if your administration skills are, are good, which mine were, you're, you're, you're gold. And, and so I'm just like, hey man, like you were, you give me your all. I will make sure that I take care of you uh, professionally and um, personally. And, you know, the, 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 the Marines that, that um, I had at the time were, were great. You know, obviously there's always that, one or two, but, um, for the most part, they were great and they kept me in. Like they knew, like I needed to stay in to, to, to there's so, so much more that I could do to help these Marines. Um, but, uh, my family didn't want to move, you know, that the Marine Corps mm. was just, the Marine Corps was like, Hey, you stayed in California too long. Um, uh, even though you are deploying, I need you to go to Lejeune, Lejeune or whatever kind of thing they're calling it these days. Um, And I was just like, no, I was just like, well, I mean, I will let me talk to my family. And I was, I was, you know, I would have gotten promoted to major. Um, And um, they're like, no, there weren't good. They didn't want to move. And so like, all right, I guess I better drop my retirement papers because uh, that's that. And so, you know, I could be resentful, uh, but I also was just confident in that it's okay. Like it's time and. The Marine Corps doesn't really need me. They're gonna to continue to go on without me, uh, regardless of how much time you put in. Um, because it's strange, right? And it's it's the strangest feeling is the retirement ceremony itself, right? And so, like you have this big buildup. We're gonna go, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do this retirement, you're gonna get this gift, we're gonna tell you how awesome you are, right? And then you say, dismissed. And then like, you literally go walk off into the sunset. Those Marines are just like, <clears throat> <clears throat> those Marines are like going back to work, going to the chow hall, going to to PT. And their, their days continue. And you're just like, you're done. You're not part of this gun club anymore. And it's just, it's so finite, right? Yeah. <clears throat> it's so trippy. It was the, It was definitely the trippiest moment I've ever had. You're just like, yeah. what do I do now? You
0: know, I don't, <laughs> did you take time after, did you, uh, your, your, was it, was there any downtime? Were there weeks off? Were there vacations? Did you do anything?
1: <laughs> so I was supposed to hit the academy, the police academy in October. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, re- I retired in September of 2015. I was supposed to hit the academy. Um, and then that didn't pan out.
0: Is that uh, San Diego PD?
1: Yeah. San Diego okay. PD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like they they said no and now i'm unemployed and you 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 know how it yeah. is because like if trying applying for jobs is a full-time job in itself right yeah. like yeah. you have to you have to you have to keep sending out cover letters you have to keep sending out your resume you have to prepare for interviews you have to think about salary you have to do this you do that and it's a full-time job yeah and yeah. like if you're not the moment you stop doing it you have to start it up all, all over again. And so like, you know, being in California, you know, re, you can't retire out of San Diego, right? Like it's too expensive. Yeah, And so you're just like, I have to get work. And so I, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get a job anywhere because I was either too old, you know, too experienced for these different positions. I even applied for like some part-time work, loading a warehouse, you know, I was, yeah. they're like, why do you want to work? I'm like, I need money. Number one, number two, like, I'm fine with just doing this menial task. Like, as long as it doesn't require brain power, I'm cool because I can write on the side and work yeah. on a side hustle or whatever. But they didn't, they wouldn't even hire me for like 15 bucks an hour just for like working four hour days. Um, and and so, yeah, I got really bad into a funk. Um, and I was unemployed for a year. I was and I did I didn't get my benefits as well and uh I kept this from my family but we were going to lose our house um, because I couldn't make the payments uh and it was a difficult time um and I was like well I'll go to school and um the family wasn't supporting that and so I couldn't and so finally I called in a favor one of my buddies uh I went in with and he was working at Booz Allen Hamilton, and he's just like, "I'm like, hey, dude, like, I'm about to lose everything. I need help." And he 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 passed my resume along. You know, I had my clearance, pass my resume along to the hiring manager, and they got a call like the next day. And I and I started working shortly uh, a couple months after and a couple months, a couple days, couple weeks after that, and I I started working for uh, Booz Allen as as a Navy contractor out there and um spay war then it's now nav war as a quote unquote program analyst yeah. know
0: and you did that until what until your family finally came around and said yeah you can go to school
1: well the the my that and my my daughters were graduating right and so it's just like mm-hmm. my 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 daughters graduated in 2020 and i was just like you know i'm like hey like i'm gonna apply to school and it'll be interesting to to go to school while you guys are mm-hmm. going to school and um Yeah. So it was like four years I was at Booz Allen. And, and again, I, I didn't think I was going to make it in anyway. I mean, you know how tough these programs are. So I was just like, dude, it's, I'm not going to get in anyway. You know, (laughs) so what's, what's like, we'll cross that path when it gets there. But first I have to be accepted. And then, you know, fortunately I was, I I was accepted, but yeah, the kids graduated, but unfortunately COVID hit. So we were all remote learning, you know, in, in our, in our different uh, spaces. And so whatever.
0: <laughs> what does the future look like for you then? I mean, obviously you're out there living the good life in Bethel, but it can't be, <laughs> it can't be rainbows <laughs> and unicorns forever. So what, so what happens when this is up in the fall? What do you want to have happen? What are you looking at in the future? Where's your head at? And what do you see yourself doing? Where's the passion? Where's the drive? Where's your next rush?
1: Yeah, I'm still gonna write. I'm always gonna write. It's what writers do. Writers write. And so, um, even though this is a radio gig, um, and I'm very grateful for this opportunity and and really having fun exploring this medium, um, I want to get back to print. I want to do magazine stuff. I want to I want to travel the world on my motorcycle. Um, I want to tell these stories about uh, my experiences and and how they there how it's a human story and a, uh, a migration story and like how we travel this this through life in this world um but i i i've learned now to like accept what what's given to you mm-hmm. and um i don't really carve out uh, a plan you know because uh Everyone's got a plan so they get punched in the mouth, right? Right. And, right, <laughs> right. and so like I'm just accepting what, what the universe gives me, trying to do my best to put out the best product I can um and and help, that's meaningful to people, to veterans, um, and, and 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 honor those veterans. Um and that's that's what I'm I'm looking for. Whether it's books, whether it's playwriting, whether it's screenwriting, um, you you know, the world's gonna know about Francisco Martínez Cuello
0: yeah they are yeah they are and i i didn't i i kept it in my pants and i didn't go full fanboy but um to those that haven't read it hopefully you will see salsa night at some point um and uh it's a fucking phenomenal piece of work it really is and it just i, I i've said this before we've had playwrights on the show but i mean you know, all all I my my watermark is just the top ten because I read all the plays, I get them to the top ten, and then the judges take it from there. But that play stood out, if not from page one, very close to page one. It was just a phenomenal piece of work, and um, yeah, I, I you're, uh, I I couldn't be a bigger fan. Um, and I'm interested to see what comes down the road. Tell everybody how they need to follow you. What? How can they connect with you? How can they learn more about you, about your work, about where you have stuff going on? Social media, all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, first, thank you for having me. Number one, number two, thank you for those kind words. And and yeah, I, and I and I failed to mention it, that. Yeah, the, the goal is to 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 set the world on fire with Salsanite um, and and get that thing out there. And I want to see that thing out there. I want to I want to bring it to the people. I want to bring it to to the, the smaller communities large communities, um, you know, and, and I want everyone to experience, um, that. So I'm very grateful for, for you and ha- having me on this platform so that I can say that. So, you know, of course, that's the number one priority on my list. I just, you know, thinking, uh, out loud, but yeah, you can mm-hmm. follow me at, uh, the motorcycle w r i t e r W R I T E R.com. Not R I D E R. Um, I'm at K Y U K um uh, currently in the uh, Bethel Radio Station so um you, you you can listen to my newscasts or my stories or you can read them so you can go to kyuk.org um yeah i'm a, the motorcycle rider on um instagram and f martinez Cuello on twitter which i don't really tweet much but those are my my platforms and you're welcome to i don't have a newsletter or anything like that i'm just uh you know but you can read some of my work on, on my website and I'm going to, I'm going to start revamping it and probably start blogging. I was, that was the goal while I was out here. Maybe mm-hmm. when I get some help, I'll be able to start blogging so that way you can get, get, understand like what it's like to be out here in this, in rural Alaska and off the grid, off the road system, not off the grid.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait, man. Um, thanks for coming on, brother. This was great. I, thank you. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> that was the savage wonder of Francisco Martinez Cuello. I'm trying to think of a new way to express satisfaction and delight <laughs> after, after interviews. I feel like I say the same thing every single time. Um, and uh, I hate that when I do that. So I'm trying not to say the same thing, but uh, yeah, i lost track of time during that one. That was just uh, really interesting conversation that I really enjoyed and I think there's a lot so many takeaways there's still so much I would have liked to talk to Francisco about Um, you know not the least of which uh, you know his take on manhood um, his take on the Marine Corps I think there's a, a geopolitical discussion to be had about the Marine Corps and American use of force and all that. But those are all subjects for a different day. Uh, I think what we covered and what he uh, talked about, um, so relatable, so moving. And it's really, I'm so impressed with how he's just ripped open uh, some scar tissue to reveal an awful lot of humanity and kind of this wellspring of stories, and I think one of the key things that he said to me that, to my mind, was when he said, uh, "You know, he'll never run out of stories." That's not the first time we've heard that on this show, and I think that is truly um, a mark of a great veteran writer that <laughs> there's just an ongoing wellspring of of stories to tell and unpack and dig into because there's still more I forget who it was that said that you write to understand. And Francisco is certainly that he's writing to understand. I think that's a powerful, if not the most powerful way to write. And personally, selfishly, I hope I have a lot more reasons to talk to him in the future uh, because of salsa night, because I'm a huge fan of that play. And, um, you know, like to see what, what, uh, can happen with it in the future. Okay. Uh, so that was Francisco, but we need to talk about vet rep and what's going on with us for a little bit. Uh, for everything related to vet rep, go to vetrep.org, T R E P.org vet rep.org. Um, the best thing to do, if you want to know all the lines of effort we have going on, of course, is to subscribe for free to our literary blog, Um, the literary blog gets emailed to you every day. It includes usually a small selection of veteran writing, usually fiction, creative, nonfiction, poetry, and, uh, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, no, that's right. Fiction, creative, nonfiction, and poetry. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that's usually what the writing will be. And then we put a bunch of shameless plugs. So you guys know what's going on with us, what things we're doing. Um, we do have so much stuff going on that it's truly the best way for you all to to hear, to be the first to hear about what it is we have going on. But I will tell you some of that stuff right now. So coming up in the dangerously near future, we are starting our acting classes. You heard Francisco talk about acting and how he took a stab at it and how it helped his writing and how it was a valuable exercise. And there was even therapeutic benefits to it. We are offering acting classes uh, in person, So you do have to be local to the Hudson Valley. Well, I guess you don't have to be. You can come from wherever you want. But uh, if you want to make an easy commute for yourself, you're probably going to want to be local. Um, And we will be starting those. uh, It'll be once a month that we'll be holding acting classes. We'd like to do it every week. We just don't want to get over our skis. So by all means, uh, let us know if the class is full Come up on the net. And let us know you want to take the class because the more overflow, the more of a wait list we have, the more impetus we have to start second and third and fourth classes each month, um, which is, I think, ideally what we where we'd like to be. But this is our chance to uh, have both veterans and civilians. It's open to anybody eighteen years of age or older to come and uh, just do beginning acting class. I don't. No one cares if you are good uh, or not. It's really about your journey and about you having fun and learning something, enjoying yourself. Um, I will be teaching, if not all the classes, certainly the majority of them. Um, I can tell you right now, a lot of the exercises we'll do in class will be plucked from uh, comedic improv. And of course we'll have some Stanislavski and some Meisner and some traditional acting techniques in there. But um, I do like, especially at a beginning level, I think comedic improv has an awful lot to teach any performer Uh, so we'll be doing that. And that again is open to anyone. If you are a veteran though, you especially need to get in touch with us because we probably have scholarships that we can give you. I can't guarantee it. Depends who you are. Depends on a couple other things, but reach out to us. We have ways of potentially covering the $25 per class fee. That is not the only class we're offering. We're also offering a beginning playwriting class. And that class is only available to the vet rep definition of veteran, which means you have to be a current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD employee, contractor, or immediate family member to qualify for that class. Um, And in those cases, uh, the fee is $50 a class. But again, we have scholarships available please do not hesitate to reach out to us. Don't let cost be the reason you don't reach out because we have scholarships available that can, um, again, I can't make promises, but nudge, nudge, wink, wink, reach out to us. We can figure out ways for you to take it at low to no cost. So um, please reach out. Uh, And again, those are in-person playwriting classes. Um, There is the option, (coughs) excuse me, <clears throat> there is the option down the road of doing um you know zoom classes or whatever we're just not doing those yet um we'll see about that uh cuz who the fuck wants to do more stuff online um and it, there really is a lot to be gained from doing stuff in person but uh we're looking forward to seeing uh members of our broad definition of veteran uh, come and show up at the playwriting class so we can start to develop more playwrights for our own you know purposes to get people published and to get more veterans on stage writing for the stage but also develop you know tell your stories tell the stories that you want to tell tell the stories you would want to see on stage and um, fall in love with the medium of playwriting and theater I think that's important to develop uh i don't know i say this advisedly Um, Because I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not trying to cast aspersions. But I do think, you know, I know I talked about this on some previous episodes of the show. But, you know, theater, I think, suffers from being kind of the grown-up spot for the high school drama club. And I think that does both theater as a medium and theater participants a real disservice. It becomes this kind of isolated echo chamber, theatrical ghetto and I don't think that's good or healthy. I think it's important for everyone in America to feel like they're a part and have a role and are, uh, uh, in, in American theater, and that American theater is accessible and enjoyable for all of them. And uh, so having more veterans of the playwriting community, I think, does that. Because that I don't think there's a more underrepresented group in American theater than... Um, than our veteran community. And I should probably say something about that too, because there've been a lot of external discussions, uh, that I've been privy to lately about inclusion and about, uh, you know, representation in theater and all that. And I'm, I'm pretty, um, black and white, no pun intended (laughs) on this subject which is that uh, we are very much an exclusionary theater. Uh, you have to be, you have to fit in our definition of veteran to be eligible. So by definition, we're not including everybody. We're including just those that qualify um, under our ex- admittedly expanded version of a veteran. But I also want to talk about why I think that's important. Unlike other, uh categories of individual, um, whether based on sex or race or what have you, Um, what I particularly like about being exclusionary to veterans is that being a veteran is a choice. You weren't born a veteran. It's not an immutable characteristic that you had absolutely no say in and that you either benefit or are victimized by through no fault of your own being a veteran is a choice you made. And if you made that, and that's what what I love about vet, the veteran community and about our theater in particular is that we are rewarding those who, regardless of what they were born into or out of or with they are people that raised their hands and were willing to put their lives on the line for a great cause. In my opinion, the greatest cause, you know, Um, or one of the greatest causes you could put your life on the line for, which is our country and our particular country with its particular set of values. But it was a choice and I like rewarding good choices. (laughs) How's that? Is that a simple way of saying it? Um, You know, uh, and that's not to get, uh, you know, super geopolitical with it. Although I don't mind getting geopolitical at times, but, Uh, that's not the direction I'm trying to go in right now. All I'm saying is I, I think there's a lot of value to paying, you know, I, I don't like judging people based off characteristics. They had absolutely no ability or role in acquiring, you know, things you're born with. You don't have a lot of say about, you know, you can suffer or be rewarded by forces completely external to yourself, but you had absolutely no hand in that. Um, I do like, valuing people, however, for the choices that they make. And that particular choice to become a veteran means a hell of a lot to us at VetRep. And those are the people that we love to give a platform to. So, and it's funny because like Francisco was talking about, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, about so much, so many complications with race, you know, talking about his experiences and his sister, you know, having darker skin and how she was looked down on in the Dominican community for that. And, and the pressure to be lighter skinned um, from inside his own community and all that yeah, fucking immutable, immutable characteristics, shit you have absolutely no control over man. That's the worst being judged because of them. Um, so we're all about judging people for the choices they make anyway. Uh, so just had to, I don't know if that was even a soapbox, but I just wanted to say that. It's the end of the episode. If you didn't want to hear this, guys, I mean, you already heard Francisco. That's what you came here for. So if you're still listening at this point, I'm just trying to fill the time and make sure you're getting your your nickel's worth. Uh, okay. So we've talked about that. Oh, God. And here I am going on a stem winder. And I forgot the last thing I have to plug for vet rep, February 25th, Saturday night. In Highland Falls, New York, American Legion Post 633, we are having a public reading of a new play by another San Diego playwright, not Francisco, but yet another San Diego playwright, actually meant to ask Francisco if he knows him, um, because he is a former Marine as well, Philip Korth. And Phil's play War Wound about the early days of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, it will be getting its first public reading there. The tickets are free. We're doing it as kind of a benefit fundraiser for the American Legion Post who could use the support. Um, but it's also a great opportunity for us to get feedback from you. So come on out there. We're going to have a QA session afterwards. We would love to hear your feedback, what you liked, what you didn't like about the play. Phil Corth will be there. Um, you know, the actors are going to be phenomenal. They're all professionals that we cast out of the city. Um, it is a very politically incorrect i mean it's marino 311's you know invading iraq in 2003 so there's your caveat uh, all your trigger warnings that you need to know are in that statement that said holy shit what a what a piece of work this play is and we can't wait to hear what you guys think about it so february 25th at the highland falls american legion post 633 just outside the gates of west point Come on out. We would love to hear your feedback and have you be the privileged few, to uh, or privileged few. Yeah, privileged few to first hear war wound out loud. For all that, any information you want about that, go to vetrep.org. Go to our now playing tab. Um, you can also go to the Vet Rep website. Look at our phone number. Give us a call. We can fill you in or even get you tickets there. Again, tickets are free. Um, you will be solicited for money for donations for the American Legion while you're there. I'm just giving you that heads up. That's going to happen, but the tickets are free. And, um, and yeah, so you can, uh, you can do that or you can also email us. So when you go to the vet rep again, vet rep website, vet rep.org, V E T R E Go ahead. Uh, any of the contact info that you see there, hit us up through any of those mechanisms And we will be happy to secure you some tickets uh, for the public reading of Phil Kaur's War Wound. Okay, that's all the big shameless plugs I have to do for right now. Uh, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, who put this episode together. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time. We will dive further into the savage wonder of another veteran in the arts.